This is Aaron Johnson from Holistic Resistance. You're listening to Bliss is Ordinary, the podcast that sings. Mm, 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 that sings. Mm, 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 mm. Let's get at it, y'all. <laughs> yes. episode, we'll be talking and beatboxing with touch activist, earth builder, and teacher of closeness, Aaron Johnson. We'll also be learning a song that Jesse wrote specifically for this episode, inspired directly by the work and words of Aaron himself. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Yam, and may I just say I am absolutely delighted to be spending time with you like this. May the music, songs, and teachings inside of today's program benefit you and every being you're connected to today. What if we both say together, we're honored to present this to you, and I'll say ad-free. We're honored to present this to you, ad-free. And if you like what you're listening to, please consider supporting us on Patreon and reviewing our show on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Your support makes so much possible. This show continues to be a huge blessing. We continue to be so thankful for you listeners out there. The listener base grows exponentially with each episode. If you're just tuning in for the first time, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And if you've been with us from the start, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> wow. Yeah, our, our Patreon is growing. Our listener base is growing. By all accounts, this show just continues to grow. And we have you to thank for that because you're telling your friends and sharing it with the people that you care about. Clearly, something's going on. But that's a way of saying thank you for the support you've been offering. It really does help us along the way with some of the costs of making the show. And we do our best to not hide the really good stuff behind a paywall. So please come on over. Join the community there. Stay in touch. Come on over. Come come on over. Come on over to Bliss is Ordinary's Patreon at patreon.com slash bliss is ordinary. You can even join for free and check out the free content that's up right now. We can't say it enough how much your support means to us and how much it helps. It's no small thing to share your resource. And we thank you when you send it this way. Let me clear my throat. <laughs> it's flu season. Oh, it's a sick widow it's, yam. It's a sick widow yam. A sick widow yam is still really pleasant to be around. I have to say, mm. sweetie. Wow, baby. Yeah, you're you're just a pleasant guy to be around. That's real. Mm-hmm. I like you. <sighs> well, we're we're coming at you today with actually an episode about real love again mm-hmm. through the vehicle of and the vessel of Aaron Johnson. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about tender touch. We're going to be talking about how to disrupt oppressive systems and conduct anti-racist work through song, through song circles, through relating and connecting. Mm-hmm. That all feels kind of simple as I'm delivering it, but it's actually been, as an editor, there was so much here in the interview. It was a challenge to figure out how to distill just an hour or so of material to offer up to you, mm-hmm. listener. Okay. So we're feeling fresh. We're feeling a little sick. We're feeling good. We're also recognizing, holy like the global moment that we're witnessing right now. I'm excited to share this episode because I feel this is a response. There, there are clues and answers and teachings inside this episode that give way to resilience and 
are a response to how to disrupt, like directly disrupt oppressive systems in very simple yet very radical ways. Mm-hmm. You know, Gigi? Yeah. There seems to be a way that things function and have functioned for a long time. And we're, I believe we're witnessing the crumbling of that, of a kind of business as usual that's been here for a long time and that doesn't work for the majority of living beings. And in fact, endangers all of us, endangers our survival and the survival of every living thing on this planet. So we're witnessing this crumbling. And yeah, this is a conversation about disruption and love as a disrupting force, which Mm -hmm. is really cool to think about because Mm -hmm. if you've ever fallen in love, it can be disruptive. Even the kinds of love that we like and, and crave can bring about a lot of disruption. I recently said to someone, you disrupt soil to plant seeds. Also, it's not always um, chaotic. Love, as, love as a as a disruptor, which is funny because love is a harmonizer too. Or I'm thinking about like when clowns show up for things, like the disruptor of mm. how a disruption is like an interruption in the trance, in the loop of what has just been the pattern of what's going on. And I experience singing for joy or for realness for grief, I experienced singing as that kind of interruption or disruption too, that it's like, it wakes something up and it shakes something loose, skips the beat on a story of numbness or a story of specialness. Only certain people can do this Hmm. or we can't do this. So this is an episode about connection as, as a disruptor. And it's a little risky. Mm -hmm. This kind of, this kind of connection as you're going to find out. If you listen to this show, you know we believe that singing is about so much more than singing. It's about intimacy with our own breath and voice and with everyone and everything around us. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from an incredible artist and educator named Aaron Johnson, who works through the medium of deep connection, especially through song. To be with Aaron is to be in the presence of someone who is clear and in their purpose. His way of being is a teaching in and of itself. He has made a lifelong commitment to use the skills he has to end racism. The heart of anti-racist work involves interrupting business as usual and disrupting the systems in place that limit and oppress people, particularly people of the global majority, but inevitably, all of us. Systems aren't just big things like corporations, organizations, and governments. Systems are also small things, like the patterns and assumptions we carry about how we speak touch, and connect with each other, even in how we sing together. One thing Aaron says is that most people have not been modeled how to be close. And closeness requires some level of risk. What have you been taught and shown about closeness? What if learning closeness is our best ally in healing deep cultural traumas and ushering in liberation. At the time of this recording, the world is experiencing multiple mass atrocities, including the violent displacement and mass murder of the Palestinian people, as well as the displacement and endangerment of over 7 million people in the Congo. We hope this episode offers a moment of pause to engage your heart in meaningful reflection on what the road to change might look like. May we learn to slow down enough to care deeply. May we have the courage to tenderly risk something for love. Aaron, just such a joy to have this time with you today. Thank you. It's an honor. One thing that we love to ask people to do is to introduce themselves. 
in any way that feels good and true for you. It doesn't have to be your, your resume or even have anything to do with your work in the world if you don't want it to. Mm. So how can we meet you? I think what feels really important, and I often enter this way because my my family is such a shaping force in who I am. Mm. And so in the middle of five, so I have five siblings mm. um, close with all of them at this very moment. And I also grew up in the desert. I still live in the desert. Mm. And the desert is such a landscape that has shaped who I am as well, not just because the desert's profound in its heat and cold and we're in the high desert, um, but also because of its isolation. We don't have access to a lot of the big city privilege of magical human beings or trainings or everything else that you get exposed to. So there's something very accessible, I think, in the work that I do because we didn't enter in at a high level of academia or high level of investment. So for me, I just want to name the the raised poor preacher family, skillful or cash poor, not magic poor. I want to be clear about that. Um, <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a dramatic difference. Yes. Um, so in that, I just that shapes me. And I also will say that it'd be important to notice how I am an African heritage man. I'm a black man, cis black man, and I'm deeply invested in tender touch. And the reason that feels significant is because I don't have a lot of siblings in that yet. Mm. I'm getting more over time, but it's still a rare activity. So it is defined, I think, how I enter the world right now, how I navigate the world. So mm-hmm. that's Thank I'm you. At. I'm here. And I actually just want to ask for one little mm-hmm. clarification when you use the word siblings, because mm-hmm. for some people that means just their birth siblings. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you mean that word. Yeah. So I do them both. I think that folks that show up in my work intimately are family. And I also have siblings that are biological. So I kind of use them interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to loop back to the tender touch piece for sure. This episode, today's episode is brought to you by Tender Touch. <laughs> today's episode of Bliss is Ornate has been brought to you by Tender Touch. For everybody. Every single body. This commercial is going to be bomb. <laughs> I want to buy that drink. That's like when you make your deodorant called yeah, Tender yep, Touch. Yep, <laughs> yep. It's going to happen. It's the whole piece. This might seem out of left field, but what would you say to somebody who has never used their mouth to create rhythm, has never like played that way or been that vulnerable to beatbox or to be in rhythm like that? Is yeah. there any anything you'd offer somebody who's never even considered yeah. such a thing? Those are my peoples. Um, first of all, I would say you've done this before. I've never seen a baby that didn't go like, Tuesday. And so I would just say, if, you can channel your early self before you were told that your voice was strange when you could express. And I know that sometimes hard people have trauma in their childhood, but I think there's a way in which you've done this before. Be that child, you know, children are our teachers. They're the wild versions of humans before we get older. And so I would say channel that. Have fun. And the good thing now is we have internet. And so we have Bob McFerrin and many other people in between that have been just playful with their voices and find that way that cracks us up. Make those noises that make you crack up and be in that joy and then hang on to that as you expand into more maybe formal sounds. But I would say enter as that baby, be that baby, channel the baby. And I think if you happen to have a baby nearby, oh my God, then you have your teacher, right? But if you don't, you can YouTube babies laughing, giggling to get that channel. But you can also remember, close your eyes and go, what was I like? Like, whatever. You can channel it. So I would say that's what I would do. Enter your music there. And I think you'll find a path um, to do it. Another question that I really love asking is what's your first memory of singing? Mm, That's tough. I mean, we grew up in church. And so when I think right now, the first thing that comes to my mind is just sitting in church and a congregation singing. Mm. And I imagine that probably had to have been going on when I was in my mother's stomach and probably my first day at church, I probably walked in, my mom was holding me and the congregation was singing there's something about, like, when I sit and close my eyes, I can tell you where the bases were sitting in the church. Because our church sang a cappella, so it was all just mostly Black folks singing 
acapella hymns. And it's in my bones. Like I, I, when I close my eyes, I, I can't think of a day. It's just like sometime between, yeah, my inception <laughs> and physically breathing air in the planet. It was all happening during that time. My uh-huh. mom did not miss church, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so your first memory of singing is is in community. It's with yeah. people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how much that's, I'm sure, shaped your understanding of just what singing is and what it's about. I'll say that in the past few days, I've encountered you as a facilitator for a large group of people looking at some pretty, I want to pick the word that's right here, some pretty real material mm-hmm. in American history and in all of our bodies as a result of that. I've also watched you lead beatboxing certifications. <laughs> and so this range of what you're up to, uh, but really to say that one of the reasons that feels really exciting to have you on the show is that you lead song circles, mm-hmm. but you do it in a really unique and particular way. <laughs> Welcome. Throughout this song circle, you want to check your throat and your voice and your body energy. It is totally appropriate to take a nap during this experience, to lay down, stand up and move around if you need to. Do not feel like this is something you have to be stuck into or be a certain kind of way. This is an anti-racist workshop, a workshop, song circle. You know, I've been doing it for the last seven months. Um, so that being said, I just really want to drop into what's up for us. So how is singing, and maybe specifically community singing, but mm-hmm. we'll just say singing, an act or practice of resistance? Singing for me started with my family I referred to earlier. And what was very valuable about that was technically our family wasn't good musically as far as early, like any young five-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-olds mm-hmm. would be singing acapella music. And that was so good that we could sit in the the learning arc of singing. And I think it always has shaped how I teach music now. And so for me, I can appreciate the world-class singers that sneak into song circles or the folks that have been singing the song circles a lot can grab a pitch and one line through it can beatbox and drum on and drop. And all those folks are amazing. I realized that my song circles in workshop or in a community is really for the individual that may have been told when they're eight years old that they couldn't sing or shouldn't Mm -hmm. sing. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, my song circles have one title. It's for those that their voice has been taken from them, my invitation to offer them an entry point back in to reclaiming their voices. And Mm -hmm. that is from elementary schools to professionals and offices I've gotten very skillful the years to really even slow down that you also can sit in my song circles and not sing a single word. That is totally okay. But the idea is that if you have a desire, it's welcomed. And Mm -hmm. I try and just sprinkle that throughout the experience and say it explicitly. And so to me, that feels like it's difficult because in the song community, I think, which is predominantly white here in the Northwest, and I think in the whole West Coast, there's, there's some technicalities. There's a lot of like get it right, get it here. And they don't even recognize it too much. It's just a little seeps in, but they don't realize how tight they can be. And so I notice how even myself, who's a pretty accomplished musician, gets a little like, I'm a little exhausted on this particular, like being told eight times to sing this part. The magic is almost pushed out of the song mm-hmm. um, because we've, we're trying to get it right. Mm-hmm. And I think getting it right is a heart practice. It's not a technical voice practice. And so for me, I just always want to make space for that. So I say that as a invitation, as one of the few <laughs> song leaders that will say, You're a little off pitch. Can you lift your right hair? You're a little flat. A little, a little off. Can we try that again? I won't say those phrases. Ever. I'll say it one more time. I will not say those phrases. Ever. Okay? We're very clear that if you give me the privilege of hearing your heart through your mouth, it is a gift. That is it. And I say it so distinctly because I think it's really important for the people to understand how magical they are where they are. Mm. And that to me is really important. I just want to repeat something you said for people who are listening. Getting it right is a heart practice, not a voice practice. I think yeah. that's what you said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's partly why I'm I'm really invested in not being like, that's our pitch. Like for you to open your mouth, your heart and and share your energy towards my body is such a gift. And I think to me, the, that's why music has changed for me. I've had the privilege of being with folks towards the end of their life. I've been with folks when they were getting close to that place. And the need is very simple when you realize the end is in the next couple of hours or days. And oftentimes singing hits the spot of intimacy that they desire as they prepare their body and their body prepares to transition. And I have found 
it's the tender parts. It's not the honed notes of it, but it's the intimate parts of music that allows us to be human, but vulnerably human. And that's what music does, particularly the human voice. I love instruments. I love drums, but I found that the human voice has this unique ability to just drop into our, our heart opening practice if it's offered in a way that's vulnerable and human. I think I can offer it and can close this up, but when it's offered in that way, it's been critical. And so for me, I haven't found another type of medicine that I would want when a child is born. I would want when I'm with my lover, I would want when I'm going to die. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's sort of the same, it's from the same magic bucket. It's that musical thing. And that's just my experience. It's that medicine that could spread. Um, and music is one of those things that like, I don't want food. When I'm closer to death or in that death environment. I don't want food, but give me a little bit of music. Give me, give me I can't even <laughs> yes. give me a little bit. I can't even breathe, but give me a little bit of music. Yeah. Each day I'll do, Each day I'll do a golden by helping those who are in need, my life on earth is but a stretch, and so I'll do the best I can. Yes, we're here. That was really sweet. Would you like to say a little bit about what holistic resistance is? If not, I'm happy to do it on the back end. Holistic resistance is an organization that I co-founded almost eight years ago. It's interesting because the the premise of it is to dismantle oppression at every level. And, And when we think about that, I think about... Sometimes we march, which is important. And sometimes we decide we're going to put our money. So that's the way to resist. Sometimes we might stand up to a family member that's saying something racist. These are all ways to resist, just to be an interruption to oppression. And so I think holistic resistance is doing that. We're minimalists. I live in a tiny house by choice. So I get up in the morning and I'm not participating in the grid. That's resistance. When I'm using less water, that's resistance. When I'm composting my own humanure, that's resistance. When I'm able to like say no to a job because my mortgage is so low, that's resistance. Mm-hmm. So there's all kind of holistic resistance all over the place. But we just want to make sure we hone into the idea that we want to resist in all the actions. And so you'll find when I show up into, like, say, a corporate office, I'm doing some consultant anti-racism. I walk in there with some flow pants, some moccasins and a bucket of clay. And they're like, what is this brother doing? Where is his suit? Why is he? It's a part of my resistance. It's actually how I roll. Decolonization is also getting your voice back. Singing up in that chunk and touching clay while you're in your office. That is dismantling the system of cleanliness and adultism and all that stuff that we kind of hold on to that keeps us very much in out of our bodies. And so for me, holistic resistance is speaking to a holistic way to look at dismantling oppression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For me, the song circles are just quiet ways to model a new way of being, a way that we can practice being together in small ways. Because to me, they all build up to us being intimate and close. In that, I also hear how much more accessible that is for people when approached that way. You know, I think one of the ways that people, I, anyone wanting to participate can get stuck is this idea that, well, you have to show up for a big event or you have to, some action that feels like you can't even identify what it is exactly. And and the idea that has to be really big, if it's going to be worthwhile, you're talking about things like how you breathe, what you touch with your hands, the way you're looking at people. Most people can access that every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hands down. It's the air we breathe. And being intimate and close, from what I've learned from your work, is one of the primary ways that holistic resistance is approaching healing and anti-racism work. I read this a lot in in the text that you've put out, that deep connection being one of the main disruptors. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think to me, one of my biggest griefs for my early life from zero to 21 was I didn't have a clear template or practice of deeply relating to someone or even paying attention to what it means to be close. And I also have noticed when I started actually building that practice in my early 20s is that we talk about racism. There's a skillful way that oppression can take the humanity from someone, which justifies horrific actions upon their body and their whole population. And there's a way that if we actually had connection to the beings in which they are suffering, it would be a much different experience, a much harder for the officer, the administrator, the governor, the whatever, to press them, write the thing, if it was someone that actually could see them. There's a lot of things like doors opening in my mind right now. I think that, because this is a question that I just have in general as someone who also is involved in intimacy with people who I maybe wouldn't, they're not just my friends. Like I have folks who I call clients or people who come to me and we're in the 
we're in the work of relationship together. Mm-hmm. I feel like I do a lot of community weaving. I'm interested in how we relate. And when you and I first met and had some time together this weekend, I something I just really appreciated and I'm continuing to appreciate about you is how you kind of tested the waters for depth. Mm-hmm. And when I was like, yeah, I'm there for it. It was like, okay, great. Like, yeah. that's what I'm hungry for. Yeah. And that's what you were hungry for. It was yeah. just, can, can I know you? Yeah. And I have to believe that many people feel that way yeah. or want that. And then there's all this confusion about how we get in there, especially if we're living in bodies that have completely different experiences yes. walking in the world. So there's, that's not a question in there. It feels like just an inquiry that's alive for me a lot is like how we get in there. One of the things I have been just tracking intentionally and somewhat unconsciously is how much time it takes to actually see a human being for a human being to reveal themselves and then for us to stay in contact and stay in that depth. And there's many ways in which that could be hard or simple, but I look at how capitalism monetizes time and oftentimes make time feel so short, like so tight. And it's not true. I mean, I say it in the sense that I watch how, how limited we are at seeing each other. And to me, that's partly why I think grief is smothered in this country is because we don't actually even know how to grieve each other because folks are dying. We don't even know who they were. My heart was even attached to them in a way that makes sense. I can't even be devastated. They can't even be devastated because they didn't even knew who the person was. It was a the shell of a human being. I can't help but but say that human connection is such a interruption to the flow of capitalism, to the flow of I got to hustle and grind. Being able to look someone in the face, maybe hold their hand or touch them and say, who are you today? And do that enough times skillfully that you get to actually be devastated when they go is such a gift. The devastation of loss is such a gift. And I think that's something that we run from as a culture. And so for me, that's that's dismantling, I think, business as usual in America, my experience of it. You're dropping so many important breadcrumbs in this conversation, really for people who are in the question of how, like, what, what do I do or what can I do? You know, I'm hearing like letting go of perfection, let go of pitch, let go of tightness in your body. And just can't say the slowing down piece enough. That feels to me like there's so much that starts to happen when we slow down and so many reasons why we're not slowing down mm-hmm. because it because of what's underneath there. So this like longing for human connection, human connection is a primary disruptor of oppressive systems yeah. also. And maybe it would be fair to say many of us are not well-versed in that connection, even mm-hmm. though we're built for it, even though we long mm-hmm. for it and we want to disrupt, that we're also having the compassion to know that we might not be well-practiced in it. That is 100%. I would say most people haven't been modeled how to be close. And I think disrespect, the emotional calorie burn it takes to go against normal protocols. I remember I was at a song circle in Duval, Washington, and I said something like, I was looking at them and I was, we were just, had this amazing song circle. People were like, had clay on their faces. People were just like weeping. It was a really amazing song circle. And I, and I was like, I looked at them and I was like, I have no desire to be your friend. And I saw people's faces like drop, like, like you don't want to be our friend. And I was like, I have no desire to be your lover. And they were confused. Like, what is this brother talking about? And I was like, I want to be more than all of that. And what it means is that in, in American culture, the cis kind of, wedding structure, call it Disney, call it whatever. We stop thinking after that. There's like, there's no love past that. We might even flirt with a mother and a child love, but we don't, I think we underestimate the magnitude of what we actually can do. It is so much beyond every kiss begins with K, right? <laughs> I'm serious. There's a way people stop thinking. That, that's like it for them. Their, their, their brains peaked out of that's the ultimate arrival, right? And so I say it because while I was asking that group to do in Duval, Washington, which is a small town up here in the Northwest, and I was there and we were having a good time, but this part where I was inviting them to say, let's, let's, let's understand that we're quite capable of loving each other way more than we currently are. And, and what happens when we start to dream of something else, something after that? And so I just think that if we're trying to start the idea of being close to someone, right, let us say, what does it mean to dream beyond what is looked at as the pinnacle of love in our life. And not to say that's, that marriage is like horrible and bad, but it's what would it mean to say, what's more than that? What's more than that, right? 
you know, like relationship anarchists and people like that kind of like question that narrative. But I think I appreciate, I wish that was more of a practice in a very just intimate way. And I think what's also important when you start to imagine something beyond that, you ask different kinds of questions and you listen differently to the answers. And you change the topics in ways that you wouldn't go to if you had this limitation of like, I only can love you as much as, uh, as, as Walt Disney said I can. So I'm going to ask questions right in that little box. Mm-hmm. But if I go beyond that, then all of a sudden I'm thinking differently. And that to me is the, the simple method of dismantling the kind of American, particularly mainstream version of what connection can look like. And so I think if you start building questions and topics from there, you have a profound experience. That's my experience at least. There's a way that when I'm in workshops and I, I talk to groups of people and I said, what if you woke up in the morning and we don't really watch TV the same way, but maybe get your cell phone out and you get your laptop or your iPad or your TV and you turn it on and there's there's a boxing ring, two black, really athletic looking black men getting ready to like engage in what we might look at as a boxing match. And they get together and they they come to the middle and the commentators are like, yes, this is a very, very important battle. And the audience is, is around and, and they get to the middle. And instead of punching, they just eye gaze and maybe one reach out of the hand and the commentator's like, oh, and look at his technique. And wow, the, wow, the ability he has to <laughs> tenderly hold him. He, he's been training for years for this match. Oh my, and oh, they're going to the ground. And look at that, just the tender cheek stroke there. Just, oh my goodness. The, and the audience is just like, oh my goodness. And, it, and, and oh, and the tears and look at his attention. He's just holding the tears so skillfully. And you would think you're on the wrong planet. You would think, what am I watching? What kind of art piece is this? And, and truthfully, as much as that feels strange and almost funny to think about, that's possible that we would have folks that at the highest level of athleticism, it's an emotional care. It would do so much more for our culture, for our suicide rate, for our mental health, for our physical. But yet it feels normal to have a commentator talk about someone training for their lifetime to knock another person unconscious and be like, that totally is, yeah, that's totally like a good investment of thousands and millions of dollars to the propaganda machine. This is how it is to be a human. This is athleticism at its best. And I, I'm not even against athleticism. But I just want to track how normalized brutal violence towards each other is just like, that's normal. And if we did turn on TV and that actually was on television, even me, I would be like, what am I watching? Like, what is going on? Like, and I say that because the Cut Project is asking that question. It's helping us slow down otherwise normal, I'll put in quotation marks here for the audio here, normal violent behavior saying this is this is not actually even healthy at all. And I And I say that because I played four years of football. I'm an athlete at my core, and I know that it would have benefited me so much more if there was a place on campus that I could go and train my emotional intelligence, that I could work on my tenderness, that someone give me an on-ramp of being a full human being. And so that's what the Cut Project is trying to offer, is trying to offer an alternative to violent touch. And I'm not even anti-wrestling. I'm not anti-testing our strength. But if we don't parallel that with emotional intelligence or emotional availability, then I think we're missing a whole bunch of ourselves. I just want to say those words slowly because I think even in how you're naming the project, there's so much information you're offering. Chronically undertouched. I just keep that word chronically like it was really worked on me as I've heard this um, for the CUT project. CUT being the acronym for chronically undertouched. For me, I have this clarity in my body of how I've went big chunks of my life. I remember I was like 22 years old and I remember asking my girlfriend, I was like, hey, um, you want to cuddle? And I could tell she was like, what? what? What did you say? And I knew the answer was never mind. And I didn't ask for a cuddle for, for 10 more years from anyone, right? Because she was very clear that she wanted a refund on her black man if he would want to cuddle. Because that's not the brother she was trying to hold up. And space. Now, we were young. We were all in the narrative. I was trying to feel it too. But I had a deep desire mm. for tenderness and touch. And a lot of brothers do. Actually, all of us as humans do that. And nervous system can vary. Some people need less touch for a variety of reasons. But generally speaking, human contact with another human is needed for us. And so when they use that you know, observation that when children aren't touched in hell, they can die or they will die. Is not just a casual thing. Our bodies need it to be, right? And so I say that because the project is 
a direct effort to say, what does it mean to build an on-ramp for someone that's been chronically under-touched for 15 years? And, and what does it look like to make it accessible? Even without high-end therapy and big budget, how do you build an on-ramp? And so I talk about listening is one of the fundamental pieces. And I find myself that listening is a massive activity. It's foundational in our work. So listening is a thing I can go on for hours about, but I would say that having attention for tenderness in the black male body, even for 10 minutes, is pretty profound. And then the second thing is music. Music we found, singing, not as a performance, as a casual thing, became a centerpiece for building an on-ramp to the heart around touch. And actually we found that singing, not just singing, but singing while working with the earth. So you could be walking barefoot on earth or singing while plastering a building or plastering a wall or making clay balls, something about touching this raw earth and singing is noticeably different than being in like a room like this with like carpet and no actual earth in our kind of direct body contact that changes experience. And that was something we just learned through seeking out ways in. sacred too is being able to practice the slow practice of touching each other and then going what did that feel like and what came up for you and having some kind of intellectual not like in an academic way but just some kind of way to verbalize what's happened in your body when you're in your journey to an on and that to me feels like one of the things that I have been moved so deeply by the handful of black men that trusted me to, to build this practice for them then building their own personal vocabulary of like this is what I feel like when I have 10 minutes of a handhold with you just sitting here sitting or this is a terror I feel when you ask me to stand up and walk holding your hand because that feels different than sitting and holding your hand. And I can notice the difference of what comes on my body when I'm sitting here in this chair and we're holding hands looking at each other. And then we stand up to walk 10 feet out just to get terrified of like, oh, this feels energetically different. Mm-hmm. Like that is just a brilliant observation that one could speak to. So mm-hmm. the ability to notice our body shift, sense of safety shift has been fundamentally one of the most valuable tools we've had to be able to make it a safe journey. And I think the Cut Project does allow us to imagine a world where tender platonic touch leaves the realms of kink and edge and unseeable to like, it's Monday. As, as common as we see people get knocked out in the UFC on YouTube, I want to see people practice reaching for each other, techniques performed and and then shared. Mm. I think it's my life's work. I mean, I say that about holistic resistance. I say that about grief to action, but something about the terror of tenderness in the black male body in America today feels like an important thing to slow down and look at and find the origin story and methodically, relentlessly dismantle it. Like the question comes up, why would a young cis male, a young black boy's body be chronically undertouched? And this, I think, links into some really important material that you are studying, offering, sharing right now. And it also feels very tender. It was one of the big aha moments for myself when I started trying to find cuddles and connection for myself. And the responses were as if I was asking for some extreme thing or really confused. People were like, I don't understand why you're even asking. I don't, why would you? We need that. So I, I kept asking myself, what's the origin story of the dominant narrative of my body? And so when I talk about the origin story, what I'm alluding to is this idea of the Black brute. And the Black brute was when slavery was happening, there's a broad strokes of history here without dates, but it's one name. When slavery was happening, you didn't want to kill your, your slave because it was expensive. This is a high commodity investment. But after they were freed from slavery, they became much more disposable. And so you go from Black folks being looked at as like a happy and passive to being aggressive and brutes. And that's when they were free. You see this kind of trend kind of go from being these like big eyed and big lipped and goofy and, and passively happy in captivity to now when they're free, they're these dangerous brutes that have an unsatiable desire for white women. That's the birth of the black brute. 
And so the black brute helped justify the lynching of black bodies. You couldn't just go out there and just take an innocent young black man and do it. You had to tell a story. And the story had to be terrifying. It had to hit the core of the white community and say, what can we do? Oh, we can make them dangerous. And they want to sexually assault our white women. And the only way we can stop that is to kill them and white men, that's their task. So now we, we fast forward 150 years, we fast forward 200 years, we fast forward to today. And it's eerie how intact that narrative still is. And so the Chronicle in Touch project is inviting us to really look that dead in the eye and go, let's think beyond that together. And this is terrifying for America to really think about. And that's why you'll find so many more examples of the Black Brute and so little examples of the tender human that Black men are amongst Black bodies, amongst all the bodies here. You said it's eerie how intact that narrative still is Mm -hmm. from the origin of the Black Brute of Mm -hmm. Suddenly you're a passive commodity to mm-hmm. you're a threat, you're dangerous, you're hungry for something. Mm-hmm. What does it look like right now in the present moment as an intact story? NFL, UFC, modern photography, Hollywood. It's mm-hmm. all intact and all those There's slight interruptions in all these where you'll get some tenderness happening. But when I look for trying to articulate to young Black men how to be, they have nowhere to look. It's like I'm here with a handful of examples. I'm, 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 like, I'm like squeezing a rock for some water to get some examples. I, I, can't, I can't tell you enough of when I do see interruption, it shocks my system. Like, oh, snap. I'm like taking pictures of it, Googling it, telling people about it. It feels interrupted. So it's, it's almost everywhere we look. Mm-hmm. I wrote this question in my journals about who controls the black penis in America? And my first response was like, me, me, the black man. I think about it. I was like, no, we don't. Black men do not control the narrative. The black penis is almost a separate being than us. It defines us more than we get to even choose, right? It defines us in ways that almost sit in the backdrop of our identity. And I realized that when I was reaching for those young black men through tenderness, one of the first things that I have to approach and cough up with them is their attachment to the belief that their penis is a defining factor of their actual blackness and maleness. It's not something they chose. Like, they didn't come out, wah, I kept on my penis more than anything else. No, that was given to us somewhere right. from zero to 15, 16, 17 years old. I got the same conditioning, right? There's a video of Mike Tyson um, in a comedy club, and a brother gets upset. Maybe he's high on drugs. I don't know if he's a black man's upset. And he starts hackling the comedian. And the bouncer comes over to, to kick this brother out of the club and the brother pulls out a gun and it's like, I'll shoot everybody in this room. He's just threatening everybody. He's kind of threatening Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson doesn't really move at all. He's just sitting there. And then Mike Tyson says, come here. Right. He's like, no, I got to go. They're going to call the cops. He says, no, come here. Come here. And the brother just goes over to him and gives him a hug. Mm. Iron Mike. Who's known for knocking people out. I just want to name, it was so interruptive. And that's in so many of us. Like so many of us have that ability. And the brother gave him a hug, right? He gave him a hug. But I say it because it was such interruption of what we expect the Black body to do. Where's your capacity right now? <laughs> I can go for hours. Y'all okay. are just tapping all the pieces. I mean... <laughs> This is a workshop. I mean, I... <laughs> great. Great. I have plenty of capacity. I got yeah. cooking and water. I'll drink some cooking Yeah, you water. got some pulp. I'm understanding colonization and decolonization because I also want to almost like leave a little tiny bit of room to name that for folks who are maybe those terms aren't as familiar to them or they've heard them a bunch and they're kind of glossing over. What does that Mm. mean anymore? Mm -hmm. I can say for me, compartmentalization is a word that really gets connected to that. That something about colonizing was about, well, this goes in this place and this goes in this box. These people do this and you don't do this here. And that those rules became implicit also, which is where it got really tricky because it was like, 
No one was saying, for instance, don't cry in here, but you knew if you were paying attention and you felt it as a sensing feeling being, you don't cry in here. It's all these implicit rules that have to do with how we fragment people and a people collectively. So for me, the decolonizing is so much about things that have been compartmentalized. You only cry when you're alone Mm -hmm. and nobody can see it. Mm -hmm. You make sure you're out of earshot. You only sing when you know you've got the notes. You know, it's going to sound right. What happens when we blur those lines and bring them together? What I say in Holistic Resistance Song Circles is that we don't separate weeping and wailing from music and singing. We look at the both of those as singing. So if I'm singing a song and I begin to wail or I begin to weep, we understand that, that is music and that we can continue to sing around that or we all can begin to wail, but it's not like, oh, we stopped singing. We're now weeping. And, and I think it's important because I feel like it took me 20 years to reclaim my tears and they started to come back. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone's ever not cried for 20 years and then their body relearned how to cry. So the, the backlog, it's like your face gets blown off the first time. It's just like, it, it's a big deal. My face was falling off almost for the first eight, 10 times I cried. And it was a way in which I was so grateful to have my tears back. So for me, tears are so sacred across the board, but especially in a culture that smothers tears from masculine bodies primarily. But I know some folks in femme bodies that constantly are smothered from their tears. But generally speaking, men... And I was modeled this from my parents. My father, we would go to four or five funerals a year and I'd never seen him cry. I seen him cry twice in his entire life. And it was barely, it was like little dribbles. It wasn't even like a, a legit well. And I saw him the death of his mother. I saw him some tragedy. I'm telling you a lot of tragedy. I'd never saw my dad really break down and cry. So the idea is that he was one of my biggest models of how to be a masculine, emotional being early on. So for me, when we talk about in our song circles that, that tears of music, it's, it's a decolonizing way to track how we could show up. And just recently I've been slowing down the fact that like, we don't tell people you're weeping off pitch. Can you lift your tears up here in California? We cry in the key of this. <laughs> we don't deal with the strangest thing, even in most oppressive environments, that would be a strange behavior. And so for me, that welling is so important. In some of my work, you know, is as a counselor for people coming with whatever pain they're holding, whatever growth they're looking to experience. And over the years, I've noticed it's really common for people to apologize in a therapy room for crying And people will pause themselves to say, just give me a minute and they'll pull it back together to keep talking. And I'm always like, well, we just worked so hard to get to that. Like, don't, don't pull it back in now. Don't retract it now. And I'm just thinking about all these spaces that we've set up that are, you know, on the surface set for feeling. And in those spaces, sometimes it's like the hardest to, to really trust that, I guess. Yes. Risk something. Do it tenderly Do it together And there could even be an echo that comes in here Risk something Do it tenderly just want to keep highlighting this, how when you say deep connection, it's not a soft, fuzzy, it's not the bypass. That it's, it takes work and there's labor there and there's consistency and time and energy put in. And as you've said many times, this is life or death. Yeah. Literally for many people. Yeah. Now I'll say this real quick, but I say to me, I, I watch, I watched the 2020 happen. A brother died slowly in 2020, George Floyd. He died slowly, horrifically, and I remember I was watching, someone sent me a video of a helicopter shot of like 10,000 white folks walking down Portland Street in the rain. They had jackets, salt. It's one of those powerful visuals I saw. I'm like, that's powerful. And about 10 seconds of watching that, I thought to myself, almost 80% of those folks live in a half million dollar homes. 80% of the folks have too much money in their bank account. I know there's at least 20 millionaires just tucked in there casually. And I can guarantee you, they all marched in solidarity and got back in their cars and went right back home and forgot. And right now they're all comfortably in their home and no one's marching. And I'm going to tell you something right now, easily. If I had a magic wand, I said, hey, you're marching in the rain in numbers of 10,000 numbers I've never seen in the Northwest ever prior to 2020. I've never seen this before in my living life. If we took 10% of the reparation resource in that space and unskillfully transferred it to people that have been exploited from this country alone, you would have done more than marching in the rain for that day at a good helicopter shop. And yes. that to me, I think is what I would like to see different. But what happens if 
they hear my voice here and they want to just collapse down into like pure shame. And there are so many geniuses and good thinkers in this community. I'm just waiting for us to really kind of hone it into a kind of a focal point. But that, that, that's what I would say is my is my heartfelt invitation. And this is me saying, I love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> so this being looping right back to what you said, so much at the core of the slow, patient, methodical work that you're up to around deep connection, because what will allow someone to do something like take my money and make it our money, your money is our relationship, is me being invested in you as a person, being disturbed at night Mm -hmm. by what disturbs you, Mm -hmm. feeling concerns, Mm -hmm. your concerns as my concerns also there's there's a someone said, and why are you saying white utopia? What do you mean? What do you mean? I feel upset when you say that sometimes. I'm a little triggered when you say white utopia. And I just want to say, so people are like, Aaron, you don't want me to have joy. You don't want me to have a nice house. I'm not even trying to tell you how to have your house or your joy, but I'm just saying that I want you to notice the difference of when I'm dancing on top of somebody's body, I want to notice that. White utopia never notices the blood under their feet. They're just enjoying themselves. There's no grief. There's no acknowledgement. I don't see you, right? I went to Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. I was there and I went to a gravesite. And there's a little tombstone and now there's three people named three slaves. And it says, in this area, there's 25 to 50 slaves buried. We don't actually know. We're not even gonna count them. We just know that they're here in this area. As much as I appreciate it being quartered off, there was no counting. No, they're just, in this area, there's 50 to 25, give or take. That's our estimate, best guess. You best believe that if the forefathers at that time the were buried in a given area, they wouldn't be like, over here, maybe it's 20 of them. I don't know. We just kind of pot them bare. Uh, no. Right. It's, it's the idea is that Charlotte's dancing on those slaves' graves. That we don't know how many there are. They're under our feet. We can we can move on. It's a barely, it's a barely acknowledged. But boy, our banking system, our football team, amazing. Oh, you gotta know about Charlotte. It's it's night scene is on point, but how many slaves are on the feet? We don't know. We dance on them. Mm. The native folks, we dance on them. Mm-hmm. And that's why Utopia, we can dance and have our joy right on top mm. of people not even notice. That's what Utopia. That is so true. We could keep going endlessly, I know. <laughs> I think we'll start to wind down here. and But I will leave some space. Is there anything else that you want to say that's... There's some timidness in white utopic spaces because they're afraid to make mistakes. And I appreciate the desire to not make mistakes. But I find that I'm always amazed of how much magic is in a given space, and oftentimes a white space. And it's it's smothered by the sensation of hopelessness and good vocabulary and trying to do the right thing. And I've had to really just say to folks, let's move, let's engage. I remember I was talking to an intentional community I was doing some support on, and they were like, Aaron, we are so upset. We've had these Black people here, and we failed. They're upset at us, and that we're just struggling. I said, it's been to realize that you're having an argument with the person, the global majority and the black person in your community because you actually have them in your community. That's a good thing. Yeah, people are having no fights at all because they don't even have them in their community. There's no, so my point is, is like sometimes we feel like we're failing and we're actually doing very good because we actually swim in the water deep enough to put something at risk. And for me, I just want to invite particularly white folks that are really comfortable. I want you to stay comfortable on some level. Like don't exceed your capacity. I've realized that's almost fatal in the, in the black community if you come in there out of capacity. And risk something. Risk something. And do it tenderly and do it together. That's ultimately what I'm inviting to happen. And that's kind of what I'm doing. If I'm in Bellingham, being y'all amazing humans, I risked something, right? It's a risk and it's, it's amazing. Has it been 100% amazing? Nope. But it's amazing. And so I just think, and it's funny because I remember I was in Seattle like five years ago and I was like, I'm not asking y'all to come to the desert and be up with me. And, and since then, we've had a lot of white folks show up on the property and help us build things. It's amazing. So I'm no longer going to say I'm going to ask. I am asking you, come to the desert, come to <laughs> the, show up for black people, show up for people the majority, show up for folks that would think you're not. 
And so for me, that would be what I would encourage. And again, let's keep singing. Let's keep this music alive. I think there's something really special about the song community, what we're cultivating and taking song into community is to me a profound vehicle for our humanity to stay intact. And so I say more singing, more risk, and let's do it together. I think it's time for a song. Yeah, I think so too. Jesse, before you teach us this song that you've caught, do you want to say anything about how it came through? I've been enjoying saying received lately. The song that I received. We had been listening to the audio of Aaron. We were deciding on the title for the episode. We were really feeling into this possibility of calling the episode Risk Something of Aaron Johnson. So it had me reflecting on taking risks in relationships. I was driving home at night and thinking about the invitation Aaron gave. For me, it was this question that came up, which was, I believe in showing up open-hearted and wholehearted. So when I don't, what is it that I'm so afraid I'm going to lose if I show up with an open heart? And uh, that first line just came out as a question. What is it that I feel that I have to lose being here open-hearted with you? Mm. And then the inverse of that question, what is it that I might have to give being here and taking a risk with you? So I just was kind of singing that as a let, letting the question sink in for me and then the rest of the song rolled out in time. This feels like a significant moment for you because this is the first time I believe you've received a song specifically for an episode, right? Yeah. When we, yeah. when you and I were working on this episode, you asked me, would you mind taking the song for this episode? And would you mind seeing if there's a song out there coming up with a song for this episode? I've never done that exactly before. Really love the process of listening in and taking uh, some of Aaron's words and teachings, weaving them into my own story. Is there anything you'd want Aaron to know as he hears this song? Well, I, I hope you like the song, Aaron, a little bit. <laughs> but I've been really moved just being in proximity to how you speak, the language you use, and the way that you talk about things. And so my hope is that this song is uh, just one facet of a reflection back of the work you're putting out in the world. And thank you. Okay, let's learn this song. We're just going to teach one part of this song. You can learn the rest by going back and listening to the song a few times and finding the lyrics in the show notes. Give something that means something to you. Give something that means something to you. Give something. Give something. Great, we're gonna add another part to that. Give something that's worth something to you. Mm. Little curly cue at the end. Okay. Yeah, go ahead and try it. Give something that's worth something to you. Exactly. Now let's do it once together. You and I. <laughs> Give something that's worth something to you. Give something that's worth something to you. All right, we got it. What is it that I feel that I have to lose? Being here, open-hearted with you. What is it that I feel that I have to give? Being here, taking a risk with you. What is it that I feel that I have to lose? Being here, open-hearted with you. What is it that I feel that I have to give? Being here, taking a risk with you. If I don't risk something, will we see what's possible ever? Let it mean something real 
something and do it gently together. What if love could grow and fill spaces between us? Give something that's worth something to you. Give something that's worth something to you. What is it that I feel that I have to lose? Being here, open hearted with you. What is it that I feel that I have to give? Being here, taking a risk with you. If I don't risk something, will we see what's possible ever? Let it mean something real to you and I. If we would risk something and do it gently together, what if love could grow and fill spaces between us? Give something that's worth something to you. Give something that's worth something to you. this last night, a friend, like we need to be able to take an action. We need to be able to do something. And that's for everybody to sort out what that looks like. But we also need to be able to have actions that we can do every day, ongoing for years, for lifetimes. So there won't always be a rally if that's what your action is. There won't always be a number to call or even a clear course of action, but there will always be a human being in front of you. There will always be a way of showing up. And for me, having sometimes having a foot in the world of modern spirituality and also what sort of like labels itself modern spirituality, but can be really dissociated, can be really like, oh yeah, you you relate to these genocidal acts as, as something that you're able to be a step removed from. And it's like, what if you take the risk and let yourself feel a bit of this, let your heart break open to give the gift of your, your deep concern, your actual care. And then go from there and then not collapse in on that, but actually let that become like a compass point. I do believe in eroding the systems that are here. We might not be able to topple something in one fell swoop and completely change the course of it, but eroding the business as usual, which does teach us scroll past, get upset and then distract yourself. Don't actually digest it long enough to, to ask yourself some hard questions or tells us drown in it and forget that you have gifts in this world. You have, you carry love in you. You have power in your love, in your concern. And you might not know exactly what to do. We can move into more vulnerability and intimacy together. And I feel that way with song as we're finding, yeah, singing is part of the movement towards liberation. It just is specifically singing together and how embodied and vulnerable and natural, fundamentally natural that is. To directly support Aaron's work with Holistic Resistance, Grief to Action, the Chronically Undertouched Project, and more, we encourage you to please check out the links in today's show notes. What makes this show ad-free is generous listener support through Patreon. Every bit of resource you share with us helps us dream this show into being. This program was edited by me, Yam Baby. It was written and envisioned by Jesse Ratto. 
Engineering and production support for this show was provided by Tracy Luther. Enormous thank yous to patrons Don Motherheart, Helena Piper, Amanda Blaine, Tim Omanzo, and Jesse French. And thanks to all of you patrons and listeners out there helping bring this dream of ours to life. Until next time, keep taking risks, everybody. We'll do the same. This is Aaron Johnson from Holistic Resistance, and you're listening to Bliss as Ordinary, the podcast that sings. Almost. This is Aaron Johnson from Holistic Resistance, and this is Bliss is Ordinary, <laughs> the podcast that sings. What, what's the actual name of the show? That's it. You got oh, it. Okay. Nailed it. Sure. <laughs>